0: Hello, my dear friends, in honor of the upcoming festival of Purim, we have a special surprise for you, a special treat coming from the Torch Hunt Houston, Texas. There's a special brand new Purim podcast that I recorded with my dear brother-in-law, the famed genius, the brilliant Rabbi Shmueli Botnik. So he actually did a podcast for us in the past. I think he did it on the Parsha podcast channel. He is actually a lawyer from Cincinnati, but he's really a giant Torah sage, and he has a very creative mind, a very nimble and agile mind, and he has a lot of brilliant insights that we share, he shares with me very often. And he prepared something really special for Purim. It's a little bit Kabbalistic, it's a little bit more advanced than we typically try to do it's one of those podcasts that you probably should listen to once or twice or maybe even three times to fully understand what he's trying to convey we recorded it together we recorded it remotely i was in houston he was in cincinnati and i was kind of serving as a sounding board you know he wanted to just speak it out so there was me and a few others on the call but it's really it's really his idea he gets all the credit He started off with a battery of questions and then developed a comprehensive theory of Purim, the festival, the deep insights and the deep ideas that are underpinning the entire day. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. As always, my address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. And here it comes, the Kabbalistic Conflict of Purim with Rabbi Shmuley Botnik. I hope you enjoy. And as always, my address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much, I will be for inviting me to this podcast to share some Purim-related ideas. I hope they will be inspirational. I hope they will be understandable. That said, let's let's jump right into it. I want to begin by asking like a whole series of sporadic questions that just kind of span like the entirety of the Purim story. There is no apparent sequence to these questions, but as you'll see, it will be a, a single idea that we will try to use to answer these questions. Sounds like a plan? I love it. Let's go. All right. So, the Gemara in Megillah, Yud Bez, is really, Dafyud Beis and Yud Gimel, is really like the primary sources for all of the like, midrashic interpretations that we have of the Megillah. So, I want to go through a few of them. The Gemara quotes the verse in Megillah that says, The Yain Malchus Rav. There was... Uh, a great abundance of royal wine at the party, right? At Ahasuerus' party. And the Gemara there says, This teaches us that every single uh, attendant of the, of the party was served wine older than himself. So if you were 30, the wine was 31 years old. 50, the wine was 51 years old. So my question is like, what is that all about? What was the significance of that? Was that just some sort of like presentation kind of thing? Or was it, were there some sort of like spiritual significance there? I love it. That's question number
0: one.
1: That will be question number one. Question number two, also related to the, the drinking thing. The verse in Megillah tells us kadas ain ones, that the drinking was kadas. How do you interpret the word kadas? Rabbi be it was. I mean, legal, I guess the word dot, dot, t, right? Means in, in line with the law. But in, in this context, it means more like it was, um, by, by their own volition. It was right? consensual. Wanted, it was consensual. That's what we're looking for. Consensual. In onus, it was not forced upon them. So it seems like they were very intent on making sure that this wine was not forced upon them. And I want to know why. I mean, kings force their subjects to do things, right? What, what would be the problem with forcing them to drink wine? Why did it have to be? Consensual. Okay. Next question. We are taught um also by the, uh, the Gemara and Megillah, Daffgir based, that
0: Page 12.
1: wore the clothing of the Kohen gadol at the party. Yes. Sounds like totally bizarre. You know, ostensibly you might say he was just kind of like mocking the Jews or, or trying to signify that he has you know, somewhat conquered the Jewish people or supplanted um, the Kohen Gadol. But I want to try to see and explore if there's something a little deeper there. Why in the world was Ahasuerus wearing the clothing of the Kohen Gadol?
0: So we have we have this party. It's an unusual party. Everyone's being given wine, but it's all optional. But the wine's got to be older than you. And the king is wearing the, the garments. The high priest. What's going on with this party? What's the significance? Three questions. Let's go. Question four.
1: Let's keep rolling. We are taught that uh, on on the seventh day of the party. So uh, I think the Gemara explains that this was actually Shabbos, and the Jewish people weren't at the time participating at the party. But there was this like drunken conversation going on at Achashverosh's party with a very degrading con- kind of uh, conversation going on where they were discussing which women are the prettiest, right? Some were saying it's the the Medhi, some were saying it's the Parsi, right? What nationalities
0: are those? In? Media and, and Persia, these are different countries and everyone's touting the, the beauty of the women of their particular place. Is that right?
1: Right, that's what's going on. And then Achishverosh interjects and he says, well, my wife, right, Vashti, She's neither of those two. She's a Kasdi. Kasdian, I guess. Then he says, Ritsonchem Lirosa. Do you want to see her? And they say, yes, we do want to see her. Uvalvad ruma, provided that she is undressed. She has to come completely undressed. And then the Gemara goes on to tell us that they invited her. She refused to come. But she uh, she got saras, right? She was struck with leprosy. So... Again, ostensibly, I think it's easy to kind of just understand this Kumar as just being a bunch of very vulgar people who are drunk in their cups and having a very uh, vulgar kind of conversation. But you have to understand that if the Torah is telling you this, there's, there's gotta be something spiritual here. There's gotta be a message here that, that has some sort of relevance. And I also want to understand why she got Saras. I mean, we know leprosy is, is kind of a punishment usually for Lashon Hara, right? We don't even really see that Vashti did anything wrong at this moment. She was a very wicked woman. But like right now when she was being invited to this party, we don't find that she did any particular avera certainly to deserve leprosy. And I don't even know. I mean, Rabbi Will, but you might know this. But do non-Jews get leprosy as a punishment? I thought that's kind of like a –
0: I think there are some examples uh, of it like Naaman, etc. But again, I'm totally uh, ad-libbing over here. Improvising over here, but I, I believe the Ramban says in the Book of Leviticus that leprosy, as a spiritual ailment, is only when the Jewish people are in a very high level. So you're saying, in general, leprosy as a as a physical manifestation of a spiritual blemish is something that you only get if you're very spiritually sensitive. So you wouldn't expect someone like Vashti to have a manifestation of this kind of ailment that really only strikes at people when they're on a very high level,
1: right? Okay, very well said. So why would Vashti get Saras at this particular juncture in time? Okay, so that's kind of all the questions they have on the party, but, but moving along on other aspects of, of the Perm story or the Gemara's in Megillah that discuss the Perm story, uh, there's an interesting Gemara on, on, um, Daf Yadalid in Megillah, which, page 14, which makes a kal v'chomer. They derive that there is some sort of obligation to commemorate the story of Purim, and the way they figure that out is by means of a kal v'chomer from Pesach. They say as follows. The story of Pesach was a, a, a redemption, it was a, it was a miraculous transition from servitude, from bondage, to freedom. Okay, It's a story that commemorates the exodus from slavery uh, to, to becoming a free people. And the story of the Megillah, the story of Purim, is a transition from death to life. And so, since from death to life is, um, a lot more,
0: much greater salvation.
1: It's a, it's a, it's a much greater salvation. It it is certainly more deserving of commemoration. That's
0: what the Gemara says. Pesach was a salvation, but we were alive either case. We're either a slave or not a slave. We're free people, but regardless, we're alive. And we made such a big deal if we were you know, and Purim, it was a transformation from being dead to being alive. For sure we have to make a celebration. That's what the Talmud's saying.
1: That's what the Talmud's saying. So the obvious question here is we weren't dead, right? <laughs> we weren't dead. We were alive. We just, you know, there was there was a decree of death, which we miraculously circumvented, but it doesn't seem accurate to say that we were dead and that we transitioned from death to life,
0: right? Me- means that there was there, there was a decree, there was the specter of potential death looming over us. But how does the Talmud say that we were saved, transformed from dead to alive, as if we were dead and we were resuscitated? when it was just the threat of death, it's not the same thing as actual death. You see, the words of the Talmud are a little bit inaccurate. If the Talmud says we were dead and now we're alive, well, that didn't, didn't really happen. We were almost dead. There was a threat. There was a degree, There was the potential. There were the grounds for us to be dead. But we didn't actually – we weren't actually dead and therefore the transformation was not from being dead to being alive. And therefore the analogy of the Talmud is not 100% precise.
1: That's correct. Okay. Two more just general questions. Several times in the Megillah we find a reference to clothing. That Tilbash Esther, Malchus Esther – adorned herself in clothing we find Mordechai Mordecai also gets dressed in clothing what's this getting at again and, and I th- I've seen it said that that that's possibly the underpinnings for the custom of wearing uh, a costume on Purim because there was just a lot of clothing going on in the Purim story um, but what does this signify what is this clothing all about on a deeper level and finally, I want to discuss the verse all the way at the end of Megillah, lay, lay oira, where we say this on, by Havdalah every week. It's a very famous verse. Oira, the Jewish people merited light. What sort of light did the Jewish people merit at the culmination of the Perm story? All right. Is that enough questions? For I love you? it. What? It's
0: it's seven questions about my account. Four questions about the feast that kicks off the whole story. We have question number one. What's the idea of drinking wine that's older than you? Why is that so imperative? What is the focus or why is the there an emphasis on not compelling people to drink? They have to opt in. Achashverosh is wearing the garments of the high priest. Why is that significant? What's the meaning with the whole dialogue of who's the most prettiest woman? Oh, I'll prove to you that Vashti, my wife, is the prettiest. And But no, she has to come in undressed. What's the meaning of that? Those are the four questions on the banquet. And finally, we have... Three general questions. A, the idea of the transformation from from being dead to being alive. It seems to be somewhat inaccurate. The emphasis on clothing. And finally, the Jewish people merited light. Seven questions. Do we have an answer, Rabbi Bonick? If you do, let's go. I will try my best. So let's begin with
1: a quote from the Chassam Sofer in Parshas Tazria. So, Pacha's Tazria is one of really the two paratios that discusses leprosy. So, we're, we're going to kind of, uh, focus in on the leprosy, uh, component to the seven questions. Uh, we'll start with that. And what we know about, um, leprosy, just a very, very basic synopsis of the procedure is if someone is, if someone is struck with leprosy or he suspects, he or she suspects that they are now uh, um, a right? they're now a leper, they have to approach a Kohen. And it is up to the Kohen, it's very interesting, you don't have too many things like this, it's kind of up to the Kohen's discretion to decide whether or not to declare this as an actual sign of leprosy, or not. Is this a sign of impure leprosy, or is this a sign of pure, you know, just some sort of physical ailment? So the Chesam Sofer teaches us a very deep and very esoteric uh, concept as to why the Kohen in, in particular is the one who can, uh, prescribe whether or not you're a leper. Oh, and I, g- I think most importantly is the part that, even if he tells you that you are, ought- that someone is a leper after seven days or after 14 days, it is up to the Kohen to say, okay, you're good now. You're pure, you're tar So it's like the Kohen calls the shots, which is a very uncommon idea, right? Like you, know, you will never find a parallel like that. Like, It's not up to the rabbi to decide whether or not something's kosher, right? He has to follow a certain, a a certain, a a certain body of law, and he can, he can rule based on that, but it's not his call, right? Here it's the Kohen actually calling the shot. So the Chsam Sofer explains that the Kohen has something very special going for him. The Kohen wears these garments. He wears these big day kahuna. And he says, the Big De Kahuna, where they originate from, is that we know in Genesis, after Adam and Chava eat from the Etzadas, so they get thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And then it says Hashem gave them Kosnos or. He gave them garments made out of skin. The word or with an ayin is is um means skin. So he says the Chasam Sofer. That the big day kahuna, the priestly garments are some, somehow reflect or correspond to these, you know, heavenly garments that, that God gave Adam and Chava. And he says the power of these garments is to transform or with an ayin into or with an Aleph, which means or with an ayin means skin or with an Aleph means light. Or with an ayin is really a perversion of or with an aleph, meaning Adam before he sinned, he didn't look the way human beings look today. He, when you look at a human being today, you see essentially uh, just you see skin, right on the on the outside. That's all you see. Before he sinned uh, with the etzadas, you saw light, you saw or with an aleph. So we transitioned from or with an aleph to or with an ayin. And the idea of the garments of the Kohen is to try and backpedal that, to try and bring a little bit more light, a little bit more ore with an aleph into into the ore with an iron.
0: Well, let me see if I understand this. Adam, before his sin, is on a very lofty level, very spiritual, full of resplendent light. He does the sin, and now he's downgraded, and he has to be clothed with leather or skin garments. And the word for light and the word for leather or skin, it sounds the same. It's both in Hebrew, that is, of course. It's both the word or, but they're spelled differently. If you put an aleph at the beginning of that word, it means light. If you put an ayin at the beginning of That word, again, those sound the same in the Hebrew alphabet, but they're spelled differently. But if you put the ayin, it spells R with an ayin, which means leather or skin. So that's the downgrade of Adam. And now we have the garments of the high priest. It's also a garment, but the objective of that garment is to restore the original garments of light to take the... If I'm saying this correctly, I don't know. But to take the downgrade, to reverse it, and to once again bring back the or the light with the olive to restore the garments of light—is that right?
1: That's right. But I, I didn't really conclude. So the the idea is that when someone gets saras, right, when when they get leprosy, they contract le- leprosy. What's really going on is that even though we all have an external appearance of or with an iron, we all we're all encased with skin. We still have some sort of remnant of light to us. I once heard that that's the reason why animals are scared of human beings. They, they sense this kind of spiritual uh, halo that surrounds us. But when someone gets Tsaras, even that starts to fade. I mean, even even that remnant of light starts to fade. And so that's why you need to go to the Kohen, who kind of has this, he's endowed with this power to bring the light back, to bring the or with an aleph back onto the or with an ayin. So what Saras is, is a further diminishment of the original light.
0: Brilliant. Understood? Yeah, total genius.
1: So the chasam Sofer says, when he quotes this, he, he ends off with the words, and I learned this from the Shla, the Sefer. Shnei luchos abris. So I went up and I, I checked the Shla and I looked around and he says this idea in a few different places. And I found one place where he kind of expounds on it. And he says that the word MS, truth, which is, you know, God's signature, right? So that has an Aleph in it, an Aleph followed by the letters mem, tough, which, which mem tough spell mace, which means death, right? You have an Aleph followed by a mem and a tough. And he says, when you play around with the Aleph, when you mess up the Aleph, you're left with mace. You're left. You're left with death. So he he goes on to say that the the serpent, when he convinced Chava convinced Eve into sinning, he did so by by way of saying lashon hara, right? He he used a uh, negative speech of some sort, and we as we know lashon hara. Brings Taras. someone who speaks lashon is inflicted with Taras. So what the Nachash did was the Nachash the tampered, the, the serpent tampered with the Aleph, which is the the first letter of the word Ms. And so what he what was left was is the word mace and that is why death was decreed upon humanity as a result of the sin of of the Eitz So you hear that's like an additional idea to what we're already saying. So playing around with this Aleph, when you say and Hara or you do something that brings Taras, what you're really doing is you're bringing death into the world because you're removing the Aleph from the word MS and you're left with Mase.
0: So again, this is a reinforcement, the same idea that that Aleph is, is this vitality, it's this light, it's this life. And then when Adam sinned, it was the equivalent or it was, it was the result of Lashon HaRa, which is bringing in death, which is also the diminishment of the light and the tampering with the special skin that we have. And that results in in death, both of the individual and uh of, sort of speak, collective humanity. And the Kohen could undo it both with the garments and with the oversight and the diagnosis and the, I guess, the treatment of the Saras to restore the Aleph and thus to take a, take away the death and make a truth.
1: That's right. But now what I want to I get into is I want to try to understand this kind of on, on a little bit more of a practical level. What is this Aleph and what is this Ayin and what does this transition and this downgrade really mean? Right. Right now, it just sounds like very, very lofty. You have this Aleph, which means something. We're not really sure what it is. Somehow it turns into an ayin. I want to try to interpret it a little bit, uh, in, in a way that's, that's kind of more understandable. So the idea of an Aleph, and I've, I've seen this in many sfarim. I don't know if I put it in the source sheet, but the idea of an Aleph, and we know that the Torah starts with Beratius, right? So the first letter in the Torah is a base. Right? The first letter in there, you would have thought almost intuitively should be an Aleph, right? Because the Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, but it's not the first letter. First letter is a base. So the idea is that the world, the, the Torah's description of the creation of the world begins with creation. In the beginning, God created. But there's something that really that really is the precursor to creation, and that is the will to create. Before God created the world, God wanted to create the world. That desire, that inner, it's what's called ratzo in Hebrew, that inner desire to create the world is symbolized by the letter Aleph. Okay. And in Kabbalistic terms, we call that the Kesser. It's the crown. So the, the spheros, which is a very, uh, which is a very, um, Kabbalistic framework of, of the God's method of creating the world and God's method of, of running the world. It starts with something called chachma, which is wisdom. God used wisdom to create the world. But before the wisdom came that inner will to create the world, which is called the keser. It's the crown on top. It's the crown above everything else. And that's the letter Aleph.
0: And, and that like precedes the Torah, is that what we're saying?
1: It, it in a way precedes the Torah. I mean, it precedes the Torah in the sense that we don't see it in the Torah. We don't see it explicitly. It's kind of like an undercurrent throughout the entire Torah is God's will to Issue whatever it is that he's saying. Is, uh, beneath that is his will to do that, right? God, God says do something. Well, there's there's a will for him to tell you to do that, right? So the the rut zone is kind of
0: like the the soul. Is it like the why? If if voracious creation, that's what God did. The olive, so to speak, is why God did it. Is so the it. why exactly? Okay. Yes, it's,
1: it's the it's it's kind of the the soul within everything that we perceive. So. The, the Aleph, in a word, is, is entirely internal. It's something that we cannot see, but it, it has to exist. Okay. We find in, in various Zohar's, this idea that there was an or that predated the world. You know, even though it says God created the or, it says via or, and that's a few verses after the beginning of the creation. The Zohar tells us that this light really predated the creation of the world. And that what God was doing was he was just revealing it. It wasn't revealed until day one. But it really existed before day one. And again, I think that's the Or with an Aleph. That's that Aleph that predates the creation of the world. So the idea here is that Aleph represents an inner Ratsun, an inner will. Okay? When you tamper with the Aleph... What you're trying to do is you're trying to tamper with the inner will. And what happens then is it turns into an ayin. An ayin means I, right? The word ayin in Hebrew means I. The I cannot perceive the internal, right? It's impossible. there's a box and something in the box, you cannot see what's inside the box. You only see the outside layer. So when something transitions or downgrades from an aleph to an ayin, what that really means is there was a downgrade from something being internal to becoming external. That's how I want to understand this idea. So when someone speaks Lashad Hara, right, so when someone sees a Jew do something and says, oh, that Jew did something bad, what you essentially did was you didn't look at that Jew's inner ratson because we know we have a principle of Ritzoneinu Lassos Ritzonecha. Every Jew wants to do good. That is their will. Their will is perennially, perennially to do what's right. And if we do something wrong, that's from an external force. But if you look at a Jewish person doing something wrong and you say he did something wrong, you say that affirmatively, what you did was you disregarded the internal and you only focused on the external, i.e. you confused the internal aleph with the external
0: ayin. Does that make sense, everybody? Very advanced. You got to dumb it down for me. So the, the aleph is very internal. It's internal. And internally, like our will is to do good. And if I if I ascribe to someone else bad things, and I look at them just like the 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 letter in and the word to describe the letter ayin is ayin, which means an I, You can only see what's outside of you. You can only see the external. So by by me judging someone negatively, I am utilizing the ayin and I'm ignoring the olive. And that is where things go awry because I'm ignoring the Aleph and I'm inviting all these terrible things to happen, all this death and destruction and saras, etc. That's right. I think you did a pretty good job there. Well, I'm, I'm pretending. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: what happened was we are taught – so the serpent in the Gane then, he said Lashon Hara. He spoke – um Words that were that were evil and and Adam and Eve fell for it in a sense and thereby they their light was diminished the or with an aleph was significantly compromised and they became human beings as we know them you know which are essentially well, at least from an outside appearance we are clothed in skin in or with an iron, right we lost that or with an aleph we are no longer those incandescent beings that we once were and we now. People of, of flesh and blood, right? People of, of skin with an eye. The idea of clothing, at least in its most philosophical sense, is to try and reverse this. It's to try and cover over the external, and it's counterintuitive. We think of clothing as external. That's not true. Clothing is there to clothe the external and refocus on the internal. That's the idea. And the Big Day Cohen Gadol, I think, the idea of it is... It's very, very, it's, it's, it's described with a lot of, of very particular detail in Parshat Tetzave. I think what's going on there is God saying, everything I'm telling you to do is this is what is what's going to reflect and what's going to bring out the internal you. It's going to bring out the Aleph that's inside of you and move away from the iron that currently encases
0: you. So you say, you said something a little counterintuitive. We think of clothing as being external because you wear it externally. You don't wear clothing internally, even if you have braces, right? It's all external. But you're saying it's actually not the opposite. It's creating a new external so that you can transform yourself. You can redirect yourself to being more internal. Is that right?
1: Yes. I think that's like, right. Like
0: the animals, animals don't have clothing. Why? Because they don't have this aspiration to have something internal. They're just external. And therefore, they don't need clothing. We are adding clothing, so that will be our external, but ourselves will be the internal, like you said, where we want to swap away the iron and and get the olive.
1: Precisely. And now, this was all a result of the evil doings of the serpent. Now, we know there is a lot of overlap or or a lot of association between Haman – the villain of the perm story, and the serpent, right? The Gemara in Chulin on page 139 says, "How do where's Haman hinted to in the Torah, right? Not in the Megillah, in the actual five books of Moses. And the Gemara finds its source in the word Hamin Ha'etz. So this is when God is speaking to Adam and saying, did you eat from the Etzadas? And the way it's uh, the the way that's written in the Torah is the word hamin. Did you eat from right? Hamin is did you from I guess right? Hamin hoitz. But the word hamin, if you if you pronounce it differently, is haman. Right. So that's the kind of where haman is sourced. And all of the more kabbalistic, more philosophical commentators explain that it's not just that that's where he's being hinted to, but that's kind of the source of his soul. The source of his evil soul is in the sin of the Eitzadas. He's directly associated with the serpent and all of the evil that the serpent brought into this world. That said, kind of what he was trying to do was exactly what the serpent was trying to do. The serpent was trying to remove the Aleph, remove the Or from our lives, turn us into, into beings of mere flesh and blood, lose our internal Aleph, become external people, and that is what Haman was trying to do as well, because Haman and the serpent are, are really one and the same.
0: Can I just ask a, a dumb question? Forgive me. The Torah, we got it at Sinai maybe a thousand years before Haman and the whole Purim story. So what are you what are you telling me that Haman appears in the Torah? Just simplify it for me. Well, what does that mean?
1: Well, the, the idea is that even though human beings – are born at certain points of time and, and we're bound to time and place. Our souls are not, right? So there's, let's say, this idea that all of us, you and I and everyone listening to this, uh, were at Mount Sinai. What, what does that mean? I wasn't, I was born in 1991. Now the answer is I was born in 1991 in a human form, but my soul existed forever. I mean, from, from, I don't even know when souls came into existence, but it's been before 1991, right? So, Haman's spiritual existence was around for a very long time. Hmm. And it came in probably around the same time as the serpents, because they are bound together by the same
0: evil source. I would have given a different answer. (laughs) I would have I would have said, Well, the Torah is prophesying about what's happened in the future. The Almighty knows the future, and therefore he put a little hint. That you'll discover later on, we put a little hint in the Torah, in the whole story of the serpent, he put a little hint, a little wink-wink, Aids, there's going to be someone named Haman, and his roots, so to speak, or his spiritual roots are found here. But I like your answer better, so we'll stick with your answer.
1: All right, okay. All right, I think this is enough to kind of circle back and try to answer up all of the seven questions, and and you'll see how that's going to work. Well, before before I do that, I, I just want to say, so the, the Gemara actually says, the Talmud tells us that there was no one who knew how to speak Lashon Hara, like Oman, the other Lishnah no one knew how to speak Lashon Hara, like Haman did. He was the world's greatest expert at Lashon Hara. And what I think that means is not just, you know, we think of Lashon Hara kind of as like just gossip. You know, you meet someone on, on the street and you say, did you hear what so-and-so did? It, it's a lot more than that. If you read the uh, the works of the Chavetz Chaim, right, who obviously was he was the world's expert in not speaking Lashon Hara he, he speaks at length at the beginning of his works about how the this Satan the, the Satan in in heaven all day long what he's really trying to do is he is trying to point to the flaws of the Jewish people and, and basically take the role of of a prosecutor and make the argument that the Jewish people should should be annihilated or they should be severely punished that's what the the Satan does all day every day and the Chavz chaim says that when, so- when you say something bad about a jew you are giving energy to the satan you're like taking sides with the pros- with the prosecution and you're giving him vitality which is a very dangerous thing to do essentially you're you're hurting no one more than you're hurting yourself and what haman was trying to do was exactly that and and there's a lot of a uh, very deep ideas i saw the, the- you- we know that haman wanted the jewish people to bow down to him right it sounds very just like egotistical right but th- there was a lot more t- to it than that he-, he was actually trying to show look the jews um th- they are idol worshippers, and and not only this is not a new thing right they they worship the uh the, the golden calf right back uh several hundred years prior right it- he- everything he was doing was trying to make these prosecutorial arguments claiming that the jewish people do not deserve to be the chosen people that was what haman was trying to do in other words, according to everything we said until now, he was attempting to in- entirely remove the Aleph from our lives. He was trying to make this argument that we are not, we don't have this internal Ratzon, we don't have this internal Aleph inside of us. We are external beings uh, and we should be treated as such. That, that was what Haman's entire mission was. Okay, so let's go back. They invite the Jewish people to a party. We don't really know what this party is about. It's like very, very obscure. It's very mysterious. Why are they inviting us to this party? What's going on at the party? Well, one thing the, the Megillah tells us very clearly is there was a lot of wine. A lot, a lot of yayin. will Wilby, pop quiz. What's the gematia of the word yayin?
0: Okay, let's see if I can figure this out on the spot here. So yayin is spelled with a yud and then another yud and then nun. So a yud is the tenth letter. So that would be the number 10. Is that right? Alpha is one, base is two, etc. Tess is nine. Yud is 10. So if you have two yuds, 10 plus 10 is 20. After yud comes, comes kaf, which is, which is 20. And then lamid, which is 30. And then mem, which is 40. And then nun, which is 50. So yud, yud, nun, 10, 10, 50, 70. Okay.
1: Now, and what is the gematia of the letter Ayin?
0: Well, Ayin, so if Nun was 50, Samach is 60, Ayin is 70. Oh, I like that. Okay, well, I see where we are going That's here.
1: exactly right. This entire party was about the number 70. Ooh. And by the way, the number 70 is the 70 nations of the world. They are the 70 external nations of the world, the Jews being the Aleph in the middle. The entire party was about giving the Jews as much wine as as possible, trying to inject as much 70 into them and bring them away from the Aleph, make them lose their position as being the, the internal nation, the nation of Aleph and try to transform them into another nation
0: of Ayan. Wait, wait just slow down here for me. What do you mean when you say the 70 nations? What does that mean?
1: There's 70 nations in the, where, where the biblically, there's 70 nations. The, the, it's always referred to as the, the Shivam,
0: Umais, right? The 70, 70 nations. nations okay, of the world. And th- th- does that include right. the Jews or not include the Jews? That does not include the Jews. Okay. Okay. We're
1: surrounded by them, right? Because we're in the middle
0: and we're not a 70. We are one. So the 70 nations are all 70 nation of of Ayin. And they're trying to drag us to become like the 70 by Im- by imbibing wine, imbibing the Ayin which is 70, and that's the whole purpose of the party, and that's the symbolism of the wine. The wine is this 70, which is this skin, which is this covering of the light, which is this Saras, which is this death.
1: Okay, now we asked the question, why was it, I think our first question, or one of our first questions was, why was it that the rule was, give the Jews wine, but make sure they drink it willingly, right? You can't force it upon them. So we asked, "Why not?" I mean, kings force people to do things all the time. They force us to pay taxes, right? So force us to drink wine. If you want us to drink wine, force us. The answer is forcing you defeats the entire purpose. All right. Now I, I heard this idea from a rabbi named Rabbi Avram Tzvi Kluger, and uh, is from Israel. He's and he said as follows: forcing us would defeat the whole purpose. Because remember, the Aleph is that internal rutzon, the rutzon to always do good. He wants us to forfeit that, to give it up. And show that no, we are now external beings without that internal will to do it. So if he forces it upon us and we're screaming, no, no, I don't want it. So what did he gain? He's not trying us to just, he doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He wants us to actually uproot our internal will. So if he forces us to do it, he hasn't gained anything. He hasn't accomplished what he set out to
0: accomplish. The Aleph is still intact. The ruts of the the will is still intact. intact.
1: Now, we asked a question, why was the wine older than ourselves? So, if you're 30, the wine's 31 years old. Okay, now here's a stroke of brilliance, if I may so, say so myself. Um, <laughs> the, um, the Sefer B'nai right? one of my favorite sefarim, he talks about the month of Elul. And Elul is referred to by the Talmud and by many, many works as the Yemei Haratzon, the days of will. He says, why is it called the days of will? Why is it the Yumeharatan? So he explains as follows. He says, God created the world in Tishrei, right? The month following Elul. So he says, as we discussed earlier, before God creates, God has a will to create. That's what we discussed earlier. Before the bays, the Beratius, comes the Aleph, the will to have a Beratius. So he says, the entire month of Elul was the month in which God kind of dedicated to ramping up the will. I want to create, I want to create, I want to create. Then comes Tishrei and he's like, he created. So that's why Elul is called the Yumeharatan. So I want to extend this idea and say, Every human being, every Jew is a mini, miniature world, right? A single soul is like an entire universe. So I want to suggest that before God creates any single human being, before God had set out to create Yaakov Wolby, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, he said, I want to create Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. And he had a good reason to want to create Rabbi Yaakov be so but, kind. <laughs> <laughs> so before God created you, there was this, this a certain amount of time. I don't know how long it is. Let's say it's a year where he's like, "I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this." And then he created you. And I want to suggest that this inner will that you carry within you, Rabbi Wilby, comes from that will that God had to create you. That's where you got it from. The reason why you have this inner will is because God had an inner will to create you, and He endowed an inner will inside of you. So Haman and Achashverosh, in their in their depraved ingenuity, they said. We got to take this wine, this iron, and we got to use it to uproot the will inside of every Jew. But that wine, it has to come from a period in time where that will originates from. So, if you're 30, the will to create you comes from 31 years ago. So, we got to get wine that's 31 years old.
0: It It is pretty genius,
1: I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> All wow. right.
0: I'll take that. Well Again, so we're assuming – that the will that we have, that good part that we all have within us, that part that someone who speaks of Shonara is ignoring, that olive that's within us, that's that will that predates our existence. Because that's the will of God it is extended within us. That's to me, that's the big insight. That the will of God to create a person or a thing or an entity, that itself is the same will that the person, so to speak, adopts so to speak, or is extended into the person and therefore everyone's will to do good, to be righteous, to be holy, to be special predates their existence and if that's what they're targeting, if that's what they're, you know, so devilishly targeting, they have to get the wine, which is the yayin, which is the 70, which is the ayin, which is the R with an ayin, it's got to precede that to attack the and the aleph, at the time where, so to speak, it originates. That's right. It is pretty genius. What can I say? You are the right. uh, more clever son-in-law. I have to admit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it just gets better. Um, we asked. There, there's this very uh, decadent, very depraved conversation that that they have at the party, and and we said it's it's almost like I don't, I don't know if you can ask this question, but it almost seems like inappropriate for the Talmud to share this conversation. It seems it, it just seems so lowly, right? A bunch of drunken. People, you know, arguing which women are the prettiest, right? Why is the Talmud sharing us the, sharing this with us? So I think you have to read it very carefully, and you will see the most stunning revelation. So let let me just read out the words of the Talmud, okay? Um, so they're arguing who's who's prettier. Um, some say the Parsios, right, with the Persians. Some say the the Medios, the the medes, the Medes, the Median. What, what what are they? Medes, Medes. The Medes. So then Akashvera says. Well, my wife is neither me, she's neither Persian. Ella Kasti, okay, she's Castian. Ritzon Chem do you want to see her? Amru Lo, and they said yes. Uvalva Aruma, but she must be Aruma, she must be undressed. I think there is a lot of depth here. He says to them, look, I spent this whole party trying to uproot the will, the inner will of the Jewish people, that Ratzon of the Jewish people. Now I want to know what your Ratzon is. Tell me, what is your Ratzon? Reveal to me what is the inner will of you, my friends, my non-Jewish friends. And they say, the rosa. That's it. To to be depraved and to be promiscuous. There's nothing more than that. Our rut zone is exactly you see what you get. There's We're not hiding anything. And then they say, and guess what? She has to come here undressed because we don't believe in clothing. We don't believe in the idea that clothing are trying to hide the external and reveal the internal, which is what we were trying to argue is the idea of clothing. We don't believe in that because we don't believe there is an internal. Our ratzon, our internal and our external are one and the same. Ratzon chamlerosa, what's your zone? They say exactly this. Nothing more, nothing less than what
0: you see externally. Now, why was Achashverosh wearing... Uh... The garments of the high priest. Oh, so
1: he was wearing the garments of the Kohen Gadol precisely for this reason. Because he knew that the garments of the Kohen Gadol have this power. They have this power to transform the ayin back into an elf, to backpedal it, to undo the harm that was done. So Achsuerus took it. He said, I'm going to wear this. I don't want you guys to have it anymore. I need to take this power away from you for me to accomplish what I need to accomplish.
0: He's commandeering the, the power to, uh, to thwart what he wants to do.
1: Exactly. And what happens to Vashti? At that moment, she gets Taras. Of course she gets Taras. That's the whole idea of Taras. Is Taras is when that Aleph starts to melt away and turn into an iron. That is what Taras is. At this moment, when Vashti essentially wanted to concede with their will. She wanted to go down there. She wanted to go down there, Aruma, Andres. She wanted to declare that there's no more Aleph. There's no more internal zone Everything is
0: external. That's when she got Saraz. So she got what she asked for, basically. She got, she got exactly what they were asking for. Exactly. It, the diminishment of the internal and that whatever flicker of spark of light that was left is now gone as well. And that, you know, the splotches on the skin are, are what uh, emerges.
1: That's right. We asked Rabbi Wolby, and you can let me know if I skipped any of the question. We asked why would the Talmud say that we that the the um, story of perm was a miraculous salvation from death, from death to life. It was an exit from death to life. We said it's not death; it was a circumvention of death. We were almost dead. We got close. We didn't actually die. And I think the answer is no. In a sense, we actually died because the the Shla had told us that if you remove the aleph. From the word MS, from the truth of God, the all-encompassing truth of God, you're left with the letters Mace, Mem, tough. And that's what Haman sought to do. And he like almost got there. He got the Jews to sin to the point where that Aleph was like disappearing. Right? And so there was like a real fear. There was a real like Mace hovering over us. And God saved us. And God revealed the Aleph. He revealed the ruts inside of us and turned the, the Mace back into MS. Now, who did this? Um Mordechai. Mordechai was the one who did this. Mordechai is referred to as the Ish Yehudi, and the word Ish Yehudi says the same. Rabbi Avram Tzvi Kluger is exactly Gematria. The word Ratzon, three hundred and
0: forty-six. <laughs> well, do do that again for me. Do that again for me. <laughs> I gotta hear Ish that one again. Yehudi. Ish Yehudi. Ish Yehudi is the description. So Ish Yehudi Ish means a man. Yehudi means a Jewish man, or right, like a Judean, Yehuda. And the Gematria, the numerical value, the word D is exactly what, say? Ratson, the will. So he represented like the, the super Aleph who's fighting against this whole effort.
1: Yeah. And the verse even says it explicitly. It says it explicitly all the way at the end. The last verse we the it says, uh, I forget exactly. It says, Ratzoi Lechol Echov, right? Which I think the simple understanding is he's, um, like kind of like beloved by all his, his brethren. But here it means Ratsoi Lechol Echov. He brings out the Ratson. Of all of the Jewish people, um, we asked why there's so much clothing going on in the perm story, right? Vatilbash Esther Malchus, and he's wearing clothing, she's wearing clothing. And I think again, that's this idea because clothing is what covers over the external and allows us to bring out the internal, and that's the whole idea of perm. And that's why it says right? And the Jews merited light. We asked what light did they merit? They, we merited our own light. We merited back that light that we had lost, essentially. Um, in the Garden of Eden, um, when the ore with an aleph got downgraded into or with an iron, we started getting it back on Purim. and that's why it says hudem and the and the Jews got light, they merited light, because that's what happened. That's what Purim is all about.
0: Okay, is, are we done, or can I ask a question?
1: I, I can. Can I just say one more thing? Also, kind of a stroke of brilliance. Go ahead. So Mordechai is called Mordechai ben Yair. Be, no, sorry, Mordechai. How's ha- it go, Ben, ben Yair Ben
0: Shimi Ben Kish.
1: Ben Shimi Ben Kish. Okay, so I, I want to suggest, and, and this is a little wild, that each one of these names Yair, Shimi, and Kish all kind of symbolize the same idea. Now let me let me tell you why. Mordecai, Ben Yair. That makes a lot of sense. Yair means light, to light, to, light, to bring light, and that's what he did. He brought out this light. Like who did I say oh, Okay, Ben Shimi. What does the word Shimi mean? You know, if I were to ask you, what's the root word of the word Shimi? It's Shema, to hear. Here's what I want to, I want to suggest. We were saying all along that the word ayin, right, which is the, the ayin only sees the external, right? When you take the aleph and you turn it into an ayin, you're only going to see the external, right? That's kind of the wrong doing of speaking Lashanar is you're only seeing the external. Okay. So what am I, I what, are, what is God asking us to do? He's saying, don't look at the, the external, look at the internal. Well, let me tell you something. The human eye cannot possibly see the internal. You cannot see beyond the surface. It's impossible. So what are you supposed to do? You see uh, you see someone doing something wrong. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to listen. Because you can hear beyond the surface. If there's a noise going on in a different room, you can hear it, even though you can't see it. What Mordechai did, he's like, I'm seeing Jews sin. What do I do? I'm seeing sin. But I know that inside they don't want to sin. So what do I do? I got to listen. I got to listen. And if you listen really closely, you'll hear it. And that's why it's Mordechai, Ben Yair, you reveal the light. How so, Ben Shimi? By listening. Okay, what's Ben Kish? So this is wild. There's a, you'll know this Rabbi will be. There's a there's a Gemara in in Bava Metzia on uh, page 85. It's a weird Gemara. And it's a completely different uh, context where it says it says if you have an empty jar, as estira bilagina Kish Kish Karia. If you have an empty jar, but there's one coin and you rattle it, it makes the sound Kish Kish. <laughs> I have no explanation for what the Gemara means on a simple level. But I want to say it's like this Mordechai sees a Jew and he looks really empty. The Jew looks like he's completely empty of mitzvahs. He's like, I'm gonna find it. He picks him up and he rattles him and he says, I hear Kish, Kish, I hear it, I hear that inner will to do good. So he's Mordechai Ben Yair Ben Shimi Ben Kish, because he brings out the Kish inside of all of us.
0: Wow, absolute genius. Okay, so let me throw out something here. And this is so this is a layup for you. This is a layup for you. I don't know if they have that in Canada. It's like when you slap the puck and it's just a tap-in. <laughs> Rabbi Botnik is Canadian. So the Talmud says that Purim was a second Sinai. Is that right? Because the first Sinai they accepted under duress and therefore they had an out. This is the Talmud of the book of Shabbos, I think 87 or 88, 88a I think. The first Sinai, they might take the mountain and, and put places it above them and threatens them. If you set a Torah, great, if not, I'm going to crush you to death. And therefore they had an out. They could have said, well, we were forced, it was under, under the duress. But then in the times of Achashverosh, i.e. in the perm story, they accepted it again. They accepted it anew. So what's the layup? The layup is that the Talmud tells us that the Sinai revelation was an undoing and a fixing of the sin of Adam and Eve. In the garden, the um venom, so to speak, that was coursing through their veins, thanks to the sin of Adam and Eve, stopped at Sinai. was fixed at Sinai. And then it was restored with the – or the venom was restored with the sin of the golden calf. And if, according to what you're saying, the salvation, the transformation from death to light or to life, or both maybe light and life, that happened – with the perm story, that is the undoing, the fit scene, so to speak, of the sin anew, and that's why it can be constituted as a second Sinai. I feel like you feel like that was on your notes, but you didn't say it. It's, it's too obvious. I mean, it did. It flitted through my mind. Okay. So, what are the takeaways? What are the lessons here for us?
1: <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. I think you could take a lot away. I, I, I think perm is really, um it's really about. Focusing on on the good inside of all of us, and and I'll, I'll I'll end with this. I think I mean I already ended, but we'll end again. Um, we know there, there's a halacha. It, it, the, this is seems very unphilosophical, but there's the idea of pedikas chametz, right? You have to search for chametz, right? Uh, and and you're supposed to do it the night before, uh, before Pesach. But if you can't for whatever reason, you won't be around. So, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you can start a month before. Right? A month is the maximum amount of time you could start before Pesach, you could start searching Chametz. Now, what's a month before the night before Pesach? Perm. It's Perm. So, there's an amazing thing. You could start searching for Chametz, uh, um, on Perm. What does that tell you? I mean, they, are just like, you hear, you gotta hear something there, right? Perm is when you could begin searching for Chametz. So, there's this idea I heard that there's, there's very, there's an obscurity about the term, bedikas chametz. Searching what it literally means is searching chametz, and you're not searching chametz. You're searching your house. It should say bedikas habayas. You're looking. You're searching your house for chametz. You're not searching the chametz. So the philosophical answer is that the word chametz, even though it obviously means leavened bread, it also refers to sin. It refers to 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 just kind of the, the negativity that we've we racked up over the, over the year. And our job is to eradicate it and burn it, you know, before Pesach. But it's more than that. It's not just to eradicate. It. It's to, to search it and to find the inner positivity within it. There, again, there's always that ratzo within when, even when you, someone does the, the worst of error, there's always that little voice inside of screaming, I want to do what's right. I want to do what's right. And it's when you focus on that where you can start really doing tshuva. It's because, because tshuva, as, as Rav Cook explains, really about returning to who you really are. So instead of like hitting on yourself for doing this wrong, you say, what did I really, really want to do? How did I really feel about myself when I did that? And when you're cognizant of that, you, it's a, it's a very powerful experience, a very powerful revelation that the things you thought you wanted to do, you actually never wanted to do. And, and you start realizing where your heart really was all along. And that process begins on perm, right? One month before Pesach is when you start doing Batikas Chamad, when you start searching the Chamad. So I think that's, that's, important on a personal level and it's important on a national level that that should be your attitude when you see jews and you, and you see someone doing something that looks ostensibly wrong don't write them off that that quickly remember there's always that aleph lying beneath the beneath the iron
0: could that maybe explain why we try to justify or find positivity even in haman you got a dream till we're so drunk such a stupor that even haman could we define could something redeeming about him
1: that's a very interesting point. Maybe I mean I never thought that there's an obligation to do that for a non-Jew. Um I don't think there's an obligation but it could be the, the idea the idea that, that that God's that God's will at least, you know, is 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 permeates the entire universe and there really is no way to escape that. Uh, and you could somehow find that even within some evil like Haman. Yeah, I, I that's a very good point, Rabbi Wolby. Well, the Talmud, the Talmud does about. say,
0: if I'm not mistaken, that the descendants of Haman studied Torah with some of the greatest sages of our time, of, of all time. So maybe we do have this historical finding some sort of positive kernel in Haman that eventually was developed into the great students that were his descendants. But let me ask you a different question. Why do we drink the wine on Purim. Purim.
1: oh excellent I am so happy you asked that <laughs> because I forgot to say it so here's another amazing gamachi on it's not mine it's from Rabbi Moshe Wolfson okay one of the greatest one of the greatest sadddim alive today there's a concept it's a Kabbalistic concept but it's found in the Talmud as well called the Yayin Hamish the hidden wine the, the 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 guarded wine right Rabbi Wolby, be off the top of your head you know any Talmudic references to the Yayin Hamish not don't don't, don't 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 do that to me.
0: I, I think – isn't it with
1: Lot and his daughters? that
0: Don't they, they – Oh, sh- Yain Amashomer?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't know. Anyways, get ready for this Gamache. Yain Amashomer, sure the hidden wine, the, the guarded wine.
0: So Yain we Gamache know is 70, exact- right? Yeah, Yain is 70, right?
1: The 70 is exactly Gamache – is exactly Gamache Esther. Ooh. So he said – so the, the idea basically is that – it's kind of hard to quantify this, but you're right. The, the 70 is, is, is evil, but there's a way – to, to bring it in and incorporate it into the, into the olive. Meaning the idea here is not to completely disregard the external. It's to, to kind of enmesh, to, to, to let the internal overpower the external, to bring it in, to, to bring the external inside. D- do you understand? I don't know if I'm being clear. So yayin, which is ayin, which is external, can still be Mishumer, It can still be guarded in a way. That it remains kosher and it remains protected and it remains insular.
0: I was too busy doing the math. 651. I checked it. <laughs> no, no, you, if okay. I say something in <laughs> Wilson, well you don't have to second guess. <laughs> he, yeah, he's, he's been tried and true. So we're saying, so let, let me just, you repeat this again one more time? What, what, with ideas? So there's a certain kind of wine. That's not the I, uh, the, 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 the I in the 70, the problematic wine. It's a different kind of wine, the preserved wine. And that is the wine. Just, could you finish that sentence for me?
1: It's where you take the external and you use it to to reinforce and to to assist and to become a part of the internal you, as opposed to allowing them to be two opposing entities. I, I mean, think of it even halakhically, right? So if, if, if a non-Jew touches or, or pours, wine right that isn't mevushala it's not cooked so you're not allowed to drink it because it's been influenced right it's a very dangerous stuff wine it's very it's very susceptible to influence but if if a non hasn't touched it throughout the entire process or hasn't poured it, hasn't moved it it's 100 percent kosher and not only yeah, you we use it for for kiddish right we use it for the most the holiest moments of 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 the week or of the year right so wine wine kind of has that duality to it where it's on the one hand it's very dangerous and very susceptible to, to negativity. But on the other hand, if it has not been subject to that, then it can actually be a very, uh, a positive experience.
0: I, I, think, if I'm not mistaken, the Talmud does say that Yain just says it explicitly, Yain, that wine is really good for the righteous and really harmful, deleterious for the wicked. It means in the hands of Haman and his ilk, it could cause all this messing up of the systems and take the iron and infuse it upon the Aleph and it's really dangerous. But it has that quality when done properly in moderation, like they say. When done in a channeled fashion, it could actually be an amplification, so to speak, of the Aleph. I, I, we could say quite simply. Uh, they, I, you know, I'm totally speculating here. And none of my spitballing here is anywhere near the genius that you're unfolding here. But the Talmud does say that the Eight Sahara, evil inclination, is bad. It's terrible. It's trying to get you to sin. But if channeled properly, channeled correctly, the money says it's tov mode. It's it's even better than the or tov. It's even better than the good inclination. So it's something which is bad and harmful and dangerous. But done properly, if it's guarded, mashumer, done properly, it can actually be a great amplification of the good and not bad at all. And that's very good. right. To, that that's the you know the thread we're think, trying yeah, to get. I mean, you're,
1: we're yeah, I'm thinking of this as we go along as well. So that's very good.
0: Awesome. This was absolutely incredible and wonderful and spectacular. I'm going to have to come back for Pesach because we got to hear more about this. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>